Father, we come before you now and recognize that you are the one true God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. There is none like you. We are so thankful that you have condescended to reveal yourself to us through your word. And we know that unless you initiate a saving relationship with us, no one can know you. So Lord, we just say we thank you for your word. We cherish and love the word of God. We pray now that through the preaching of your word, that Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable Pray that you evangelize the lost and edify those who know you. Build us up in our faith, Lord, through the preaching of your word. God, help us to see these truths, these treasures in your word and help us to be changed as a result. May we be a people who cherish the word of God and never take it for granted. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ligonier Ministries is a ministry that helps provide the people of God with good resources. And recently, they just came out with another good resource, which was a survey, a survey conducted to the American people. This was only done for those living in the United States of America to try to figure out what do people believe about God, about Christ, about salvation. They call it the state of theology, and they drew it every other year. And the, the purpose of the study is to see, uh, give an American spiritual temperature about what, what do our people believe. And one of the questions on there is, who is Jesus? Specifically, they want to know, do you believe that Jesus Christ is God. This was a question on there. 52% of the American population, as of 2020, according to this survey, a credible source, 52% believe that Jesus was just a good teacher, but that he was not God. Over half the country doesn't believe that Jesus Christ is God. Believing that Jesus was a good teacher but not God is a route to eternal damnation. It's not enough to see Jesus as a good teacher. One must see him as fully God and fully man. This is what we have on our statement of faith on our website. It says this, we believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person and two natures. That's a true statement. Our country is divided on this issue, but as the people of God, we should be united on this issue. And I bring up the survey because here at Bethesda, we've been going through the fourth gospel, or as some prefer, the gospel of John. And one of the big themes of the gospel of John is the divinity of Christ. Over and over and over again, it comes up. And many people look at the gospel of John as sort of introductory material for new Christians. And although it can be that, uh, it's also a, a very important biographical sketch of Jesus' life that shows that he is fully divine. And we see that yet again 
here in this passage. And we're almost halfway through Gospel of John, and we're nearing the end of Jesus' ministry, public ministry that is, but his divinity comes back up on the scene. This past week we remembered 9-11 and how it was a tragedy and a horrible thing. But as some of you could remember, some of you better than me, that afterwards it seems like there was a spirit of unity in our country. And now almost 20 years later, it seems like we're more divided than ever. We all have a desire to feel like we are part of something. And the Christian faith teaches that the people of God are supposed to be a part of not only God, but also the church. And here in this passage, we see that because God is one, the people of God should also be one, or at least strive for unity. So I've got two big points for you this morning, two primary points that we will unpack. And that is that God chooses his people, and God will never let go of his people. Start in the verse 22 and 23, where it says that at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. It says that the feast of dedication was going on. If you've been paying attention to the Gospel of John, you've seen all these various feasts celebrating a lot, constantly eating, constantly remembering the goodness of God and how he helped the people of Israel. And the Feast of Dedication, that's, that's just modern-day Hanukkah. That's all that is. These all these sort of names about Feast of Lights and Tabernacles and all. If you really kind of look at it, it's pretty simple. That, that's modern-day Hanukkah. It happens during the winter. This year, it's going on December 10th. usually lasts eight days. Um, Hanukkah means renewal. And so uh, Jewish people, what they do is they celebrate the renewal of the temple. Uh, we, we don't have to celebrate Hanukkah. Those who follow Christ should not try to celebrate Hanukkah. We don't need to. We saw in John chapter 2 the story of the temple, that Jesus is the new temple. And no longer do we put a high emphasis on a building, but the Spirit of God lives in the people of God. And wherever we go, God is with us. But they celebrated it back then, and this is where they're at. It also says that they're winter. It's during the winter months. We tend to think that in Jerusalem and Bethlehem, it's 110 degrees every day, all year round, scorching heat. It's not like that. They had cold winter months as well. And that's probably why it says that Jesus was inside the temple as opposed to outside the temple where people usually hang out or normally hang out. Because it was winter. He was avoiding the cold. He was avoiding the, the wind. But Jesus being inside the temple was also a foreshadow because this is where disciples, a disciple is a follower of Christ, after Jesus died and rose from the dead, they did ministry in this same exact spot. And I know people that have been there and they've seen all of these wonderful things. We see this in the book of Acts. Some of you are reading through Acts right now. Now, many signs, Acts chapter 5 verse 12, and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Solomon's colonnade, same thing. Jesus is there doing ministry now. Disciples will eventually get there and do ministry as well. And we're, we're informed that it's winter. We're informed that Jesus is inside, minding his own business. And suddenly the religious leaders of that day gather around him. It says, verse 24, that word gather in the original language is a uh, surrounding, encircling. This is a threatening nonverbal communication 
Like, we're coming to get you. We're coming after you. And they, they ask a question. They say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, let us know. They're not asking a serious question. This is not like you emailing someone. You want to know the answer. You kind of... You really want to figure something out. They're not, they're not trying to do that. They're just trying to trap Jesus. They figured they're in this religious temple building. He's here. We're here. Let's surround him. Let's get him to publicly say that he's the Christ. Perhaps others would listen to him. And he would therefore uh, commit the, the sin of blasphemy. Blasphemy is when someone declares herself to be God. And the Christ is God. So they're saying... If he says he's God right now, we can have grounds for putting him to death. And in the Old Testament, if you, uh, if you did blasphemy or you said that you were God, they automatically put you to death through stoning. So this was a serious, serious offense. And say, are you, the, are, you, are you the Christ? If you're new to the Bible, if you're new to Christianity, uh, you know, let me just say that the word Christ is not a last name. It's a title. It means deliverer or Messiah. You know, the Old and New Testaments, they go together. And the first part is the promises. The second part is the fulfillment to those promises. And in the Old Testament, there was all these promises that one day a person, a Christ, would come to save the people. There were predictions or prophecies that would come true. And people of God have been waiting hundreds and hundreds of years and they're wondering, is this the time? Is this Jesus? Is he, is he the Christ? Mostly to try to put him away. And Jesus was not ashamed of his title. It wasn't like he was trying to exercise some sort of false humility. But the word Christ has had a lot of political baggage with it. Military baggage with it. Uh, people misunderstood it and they misapplied it. And Jesus was very careful to be very sure that he was all about the kingdom of God. And not some political or military agenda. And Jesus replies to the conversation. This is what he says. I told you. That's what he says. The first three words. I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you were not among my sheep. That's the key line here about election and God's sovereign choice. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So Jesus says, I, I, I told you. I've, I've mentioned this uh, several times in various ways. You're just not listening. You don't have the ears to hear. And then Jesus talks about uh, his works that he does to bear witness. So talking about his miracles. Feeding 5,000 plus. Turning water into wine. Everyone's favorite miracle. No one knows what to do with that passage. Uh, healing the invalid man at the pool of Bethesda. Next week he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. All these miracles that Jesus is doing. He's not trying to put on a show. He's trying to help people. But he's also trying to authenticate his divinity. He's trying to bear witness that, hey, I I'm going to say it with my words. But also with my actions by these miracles that I do that nobody else can do. I'm, I'm showing you that I'm the Christ. Not just with my words, but also with my actions. And then Jesus unpacks the reason why the religious, don't, the religious leaders don't believe. It's a shocking answer, actually, if you think about it. He says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. As others have said, you, you would think that Jesus would say, 
you are not among my sheep because you don't believe. He doesn't say that. He says, you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. Sheep in the Bible, as you know, is a metaphor to describe a, a person of God, a, a Christian, someone who has saving faith in God. And what Jesus is saying here is an offensive yet biblical thing, which is this. In order to be among the people of God, you have to be among the sheep. And in order to be among the sheep, God has to choose you and save you. People who don't come to faith, uh, they don't do it because of a lack of evidence. There's a tremendous amount of evidence. It's often because of a lack of a hardened heart and several other reasons. But the reason here Jesus gives to the religious leaders is that the reason why they haven't come to faith and believe in Jesus was simply because they were not chosen by God. If you're a Christian, it's not because you chose God, but because God chose you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him. Chose us in him. Chose. You can read that in Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, English. It means the same thing. Chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This means your salvation, you coming to faith in Christ, didn't start when your parents told you about Jesus, although that is precious. When a, parent, when a pastor helped you or a friend, it, it didn't start there. If you're a Christian, your salvation started before, it says here, the foundation of the world. That's a fancy way of saying before there was a sun, before there was a star, before there was sin. Before there was a moon, before there was anything, God sovereignly decided whom he would save and who would be a part of the people of God. This means you were on God's mind thousands of years ago if you are a Christian. Paul says it this way, he's talking about salvation. He says, so then it depends not on human will, human will, your Bible reading, your prayer, your intelligence, or exertion, same thing, but on God who has mercy. So the reason why someone would have faith is because of God's choice and his mercy and his desire to pick people, to exercise his mercy, to choose a people for himself. This does not in any way uh, negate personal responsibilities. While we have church, we have evangelism. Uh, parents are commanded to tell their kids about Jesus. We, God doesn't work through robots. He works through people. Right? That's how God works. This doesn't negate responsibility at all. All people everywhere are commanded to repent and believe in Jesus. Believing in Jesus is a decision that has real eternal consequences. That is totally true. But if you look back on your life, especially if you were born in a Christian family, how blessed you are unbelievably blessed do you have christian parents when caleb was born we had someone say wow he's such a fortunate child i said thank you i'm gonna remember that so when he gets older he rebels against me i'm gonna say you know when you were born what people were saying about you that's a fortunate child i remembered that line if, if you if you came to faith through parents 
through a pastor, through a friend, through a youth group leader like I did. Uh, it, it was because behind the scenes, God was mysteriously, sovereignly working to orchestrate your circumstances, to put you in the path, to hear about the gospel, and he gave you the power to believe in Jesus. So he initiated the saving work in your life. Now, some Americans, we, we don't like to hear this that much. We love personal effort and work ethic, and we're workaholics. We put a tremendous value on work and effort. But here, the biblical teaching of how someone comes to saving faith in Christ puts an axe to all of that. Yes, you do have moral responsibility to believe. Yes, you have to make a decision. But ultimately, if you have, it's because God gave you the power to do so. And he first initiated a relationship with you before you, relate, you, before you initiated a relationship with him. So we're different in so many ways, but if you're part of the people of God, this should bring in a tremendous amount of unity as we continue to do ministry together and do life with one another. When I was in my early 20s, lived in South City, St. Louis, wonderful area, loved, loved living there so much. We had, I, had, I had roommates, I think five guys, we had a big house, someone at the church owned it, very, very, uh, wealthy, but very also generous man who was just very generous with people, and uh, he let us stay in his house, very modest rent. You know, we turned the, you know, uh, the heater would be on like 50 in the wintertime. We'd save money, too. We'd always figure out a way to save money, and most of us looked alike except for one roommate. One roommate was very different from the rest of us, very, very different. He, we, there was one night, I remember, we, we watched a documentary together. Sitting on this couch, we watched a documentary together, and it both led us to tears. Now, just for the record, he cried more than me. I had a little watery eyes, but he was crying a little bit more. We were sitting there watching the documentary, and I thought to myself, what an amazing moment this is. It's because he's like 30 years older than me, older than the rest of the guys in the house. He's a different ethnicity. He spent a lot of his years in prison. He was in gangs and so forth. He was, he was on a totally different playing field, different, different direction in life. And then he moved to St. Louis and through one of my personal friends, led him to faith in Christ through our ministry, through our church. We became roommates. He didn't have anywhere to go. It's fine. He can live with us. He got a big home. Come on in. And I remember just reflecting there, thinking, wow, what a special moment this was. Here's a guy who's different generation, different upbringing different socioeconomic status and there's no reason why we should be hanging out at all in the world's eyes but the beautiful thing about being among the people of God and being in the church is that the church brings together people to hang out that would otherwise never be with one another but because of Christ although we are different in so many ways we are united there is a special bond that is difficult to articulate when you're part of the people of God when you are a Christian you know, we are an intergenerational church. We've got millennials, baby boomers, Generation X, so on and so forth. We don't always understand one another. We've all got our opinions. We're all, we all think we're right. H how you were raised, uh, you know, parents, how they raised you, your generation, your time. Uh, it, it affects the way you think about things. You know, how do we do music and how do we raise our kids and who do we vote for? We might, we might not always see things exactly the same way. 
And it's, but if we're followers of Christ, we, there's a, a unity that at the end of the day, we can still fellowship with one another because we know that Christ and belonging to the people of God is more important than anything else. It's certainly okay to disagree. It's okay to push back. But it's not okay to be divisive. You know, talk about divisiveness in the New Testament. There's serious sin, uh, a tendency to cause division and hostility. It's gossip, slander, lies. Very loosely talking about other people. I've seen ministries and churches crumble because of this. This can happen in business as well. We have to be very careful that when we are coming from different generations and doing life to one another, that we, we fight for unity and strive for unity, although there might be disagreements. The lust for power, the lust for, oh, back in my day, or this is the right way only, or uh, not trusting yourself to the leadership whom God has put in front of you, or maybe a personal wound or personal scar. That, 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 has the, that can get the best of any one of us. It's importantly to, uh, to, to deal with that to take it to God, to get healed, to be wise about how we talk about one another and serve one another in church. There's going to be plenty of things to disagree about. We're different in so many ways, but our election, our, our, our being a part of the people of God should make us feel more united together than we are apart. This is a cause for great rejoicing and great unity, knowing that the God of the Bible chose you if you are a believer. That should unite us. So one big thing that this passage teaches is that God chooses his people. Another thing it teaches is that God will never lose his people, that God will never let go of his people. Jesus continues to talk to the religious leaders when he says, I give them, talking about the sheep that God chose, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. So that's, that's the key line for the second point. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. I and the Father of one are one. By way of contrast, the religious leaders don't believe because they're not among the people of God. They weren't chosen by God. They're not among the sheep. But those who, who do believe are. And Jesus says that they will never perish. We'll unpack what that means. But some of you know that sheep, uh, in some sense, have a propensity to get lost, to wander, to go do their own thing. Some of you may have done this, right? You came to faith in Christ at a young age. Parents taught you about Jesus. We learned it from a youth group leader. A pastor led you to Christ. A friend led you to Christ. And then you get to high school. And you realize, oh, I have a little bit more freedom. There's a little bit more possibilities. High school, maybe college, and you probably walked away from the Lord, some of you, maybe more than you'd like to admit because it, there was sin and shame and baggage that came along with walking away from God. But then you came back into the fold. You might sin or stray, fall away for a year, two years, five years. But if you truly belong to Jesus, he will always make sure he chases you back down and bring you back into the fold. That's how much he loves his people. Other people, this is hard to say, but we, we, we know people who are like this. I, I was in youth group, very active in my youth group, where people make a profession that seems credible in Christ. Um, and they walk away and never return. 
it's just painful if you're a parent. It's unbelievably hard to think about that. I don't, I don't know exactly what's going on. God only knows hearts 100%. But it's, it's best to just assume that maybe at this point, maybe they, that confession wasn't credible. We need to be praying regularly and constantly that God would save them and open their eyes to come to believe in Jesus in a real way. I know it's hard to hear. We have to keep praying for people who have kind of walked away or even pursue sheep that we think um, have left the fold. But Jesus says that for my true sheep, those who are among the people of God, he says, I, I give them eternal life. Present tense, not future tense. Eternal life is not just heaven. Eternal life is not just heaven, although heaven is glorious and reserved ex- exclusively for the people of God. Eternal life is a present tense here, meaning it's all the blessings that you get to enjoy as being a believer. And Jesus says that, that my sheep, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. This is yet another big theological statement that he makes, and that is this. You cannot lose your salvation. This is something that's taught in the Reformed theology circles in which I run in. It's the, the teaching is called the perseverance of the saints. And essentially it's this. Those who are truly saved cannot lose their salvation. What? comfort and joy and peace this is. This, this is what, exactly what Jesus means when he says, I give them eternal life permanently. You did not choose it. God chose you. If you did not earn it, how can you unearn it? And they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He just talked about thieves and robbers in the pr- previous section. Not the devil, not a false teacher, not even your own sin. Secure in Jesus. There's always this question in theology debates, can you lose your salvation, can you not? The real question is, is it possible for Jesus to let go of one of his sheep? That's the real question that we have to ask. The answer, of course, is no. Jesus says, you're in my hand. The hand in the Bible is often a metaphorical language for strength. He says, you're in my hand and I will never let them perish. To even add to the argument, he also says that the Father gives them to me and is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. It's double security. We sing this in the song. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. That's exactly what it's talking about. That line. That you are, if you're a Christian, you are secure in Jesus, R.C. Sproul says, we are secure, not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because he holds tightly to us. To give you an old school sentence from the Westminster Confession of Faith, some of the richest theology you'll ever read. Wonderful piece of document that I endorse. It says this, they whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Wow. Security, comfort, knowing that the God who chose me is also the God who will never let me go. Say, how do you know if someone's saved? Well, those who persevere to the end are truly saved. And Jesus 
will 100% without any doubt or hesitation will ensure that all of his sheep will persevere until the end. My go-to verse on this subject, there's several I could use, hundreds really, is Philippians 1.6 where the Apostle Paul says, And I am sure of this, I am sure of this, that he, God, who began a good work in you, salvation, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Salvation is not the time you heard about Jesus. It starts an eternity past before there was a foundation of the world. God chose you. God decided the means by which you would come to faith in Christ through a parent, through a friend, through a youth group leader, through a pastor, through someone. He starts the work, he does the work, and he finishes the work. Once again, this teaching of the perseverance of saints does not in any way negate personal responsibility. All throughout scripture, God's people are commanded to be holy and godly and to be growing in Christ. Anyone who says, great, I can't lose my salvation, I therefore can go live however I want, doesn't understand this at all. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. There's, there should be a sense of a love for God and a love for his people, a conviction when you sin, growing in godliness throughout your life, even as you age and so on and so forth. And, and chiefly, what, what, what assures us, the ground of our assurance is the Holy Spirit who lives in each and every side of God's people, who assures us over and over again that you are a daughter of the Most High God or a son of the Most High God. That's where assurance comes from. It doesn't, doesn't mean you'll have perfect faith. We all stumble in many ways. It doesn't mean you always say the right thing. Our, our tongues are loose cannons. We need grace. We need help. It doesn't mean that you'll, you'll always have the right answers and you, you might go weeks without reading your Bible or praying. It's, it's not about what you can do. There's, there's grace upon that. God, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more or make God love you less. And he has already decided to be 100% committed to you forever. We have a toddler who is amazing, wonderful little boy. He's just so precious, and he's a treasure. And, you know, so we took him to the pool this past summer a couple of times to fill him in on one of Dad's favorite activities, just to be by the pool. It was, it was fun. It was stressful, too. You know, you have a toddler with you, and he thinks he's ready to jump off the diving board and do a backflip. And you're a, grandpa, you're a grandma, grandpa. And your dad, you know what it's like taking the kids to the pool. It's fun, but you're running around. You're like losing weight. You're like losing calories. And you're just constantly moving. And uh, there was a time where I grabbed Caleb and we went to the pool. And we started to, and obviously you can't swim. And so we were in three feet and I was holding on to him. And then I decided to go in the deep end one day with him. Holding on to frail on the side. And, you know, he was, he was holding on to me a little bit, which was kind of helpful, you know, he was kind of clinging to me a bit, okay, I appreciate that, but the reason why he didn't go under in the water wasn't because he was holding on to me, but because I was holding on to him, his grip, I, I didn't really need it, I 100% was going to make sure I'm going to hold on to him, and I'm going to make sure you're going to be okay, That's exactly what it means when we talk about the perseverance of the saints. That your grip, your, your Bible reading, your praying, your fellowshipping with the saints, you making church and a priority, that's a very important. Grace-driven effort is important. We must be godly and holy. But ultimately, your security doesn't rest on your sort of effort to cling to God. 
but God's security of clinging to you. After we learn about God's choice of his people and how his people can never lose their salvation, Jesus continues on with this conversation with these religious leaders. And they clearly get the memo that Jesus was saying, because they asked him, if you're the Christ, tell us now, like, don't keep us in suspense. But Jesus says in that key verse that ties together our election and our perseverance of the saints, he says, I and the Father are one. So they, they would have known that Jesus is saying there that he's Christ, he's the God. So that's why they pick up stones to throw at him. This is the third time so far in John's gospel they've done this. But they're not able to get him or kill him simply because it wasn't God's timing yet. And God was protecting Jesus until it was appointed for him to die and rise from the dead. The religious leaders, ironically, they say, you being a man, make yourself God. But Jesus doesn't make himself God. He always is God. He always has been fully God and always will be fully God. And when he says, I and the Father are one, that's pointing back to the Old Testament. And most of you, if you've been walking with the Lord any period of time, you'll know this verse in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, where Moses writes, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So that's the Old Testament line. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Some have strength. So that's a key Old Testament text that talks about God is one. And Jesus comes on the scene and the New Testament says, yeah, I and the Father are one. You know that verse in the Old Testament that you've dedicated your whole life to studying? It's about me. This would have been massively offensive to them. This is why they picked up the stones to throw at Jesus. He remains remarkably clear. And he goes back to another Old Testament passage in this 82nd Psalm. Where Jesus says, it is not... Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? Very complicated verse. Uh, hardly, no one really knows what that means. There's some variation. Some, some people say he's talking about lowercase gods in Psalm 82, uh, either angels or human representatives of who, who exercise authority on God's behalf. But what Jesus was trying to say was that if these people, the sort of inferior angels and other people who exercise authority on, my, on God's behalf, if they get the title of lowercase gods, how much more me, the one who's been consecrated, which means set apart to fulfill the mission of God. And then Jesus says the scripture cannot be broken. He's talking about the, just the, the verse he talked about in the previous section from Psalm 82. I said, you are God. He's saying even, even those just couple words that scholars today debate on what it means. He's saying it can't be broken. It's all true. It's all real. And it points to me. So they couldn't arrest Jesus, even though they tried. And Jesus goes to the Jordan River, back to the place where John the Baptist starts his ministries, where Jesus ends his. And it says, many believed in him there. And many of us believe in him here. Why? Because you are among the sheep. Because God chose you. Jesus says, we, those who have trusted in Christ, will never perish. Why? Because we are in his hands and it's impossible for him to let us go. This passage takes place over the winter time. Here, we're getting ready for fall. We'll, we'll have winter sooner than, than later. Maybe some snowflakes, maybe some snow. It's common knowledge that no two snowflakes are exactly alike. Same could be said for all of us. We're not, we're not exactly alike. Different generations, different perspective on things, different idea of how to do music, who to vote for, how to raise children, and so on and so forth. We're, we're different in so many different ways. And yet, that's a beautiful part of our church as well. Because that's okay. 
Because God is one, so should his people. Unity doesn't mean uniformity, as it's been said. As one person says, snowflakes are one of nature's most fragile things. But just look at what they can do when they stick together. Church is a fragile thing. But we can do a lot more good when we stick together. And ultimately, our motivation to fight for unity is because our God is one. Let us pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, thank you. You know that you are the true God, the only way to heaven and eternal life. Ask now that you help us to understand this big truth of your choice. Help us to understand this truth that you will never let us go. Help us to let this be cause for tremendous rejoicing. Lord, we have been rejected over and over again. We've been disappointed by people. We've had people betray us. We've had parents leave. God, we, we learned today that you, you accept us even when others reject us. That you're, you're not going to leave us hanging. You're for us forever, even when everyone else around us betrays us or leaves us hanging. So God, we just say this is amazing. Help us to understand it more with our heads and our hearts. Help us to be transformed by this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.